everybody, welcome to episode 58 of Literary Disco, Submergence. Today's episode will begin with a round of judging a book by its cover, a segment in which we each will read the first paragraph of a book and let the others guess what the rest of the book is about. And then we will discuss the novel Submergence by J.M. Ledgard. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hi there. Good afternoon. This is a, It's another important episode for us. Um, we had an episode recently where it was the last episode before Julia got married. And this is now the last episode potentially before Julia is swallowed by a whale. <laughs> so I think it's important that we acknowledge that she has imminent death possibly in her future. I mean... I guess we all have imminent death in our future, but Julia is going on her whale ship adventure next weekend. Yeah. Yes. And I've talked about it before, but just as a review, in case you don't listen to all our episodes and you're a bad listener, uh, <laughs> we, I got uh, accepted to this program on the only remaining historic whale ship, and it is sailing from, well, it's already started, but it's sailing from Mystic Seaport all the way up the East Coast, all the way around to Provincetown. And I'm going to be sailing on the Provincetown to Boston leg. So I'm really, really excited. And it's going to be all Moby Dick all the time. So get ready, Tad. Now, hold on. Here, here's a question. What are the chances of you actually seeing a whale? Good. Uh, because... Like, um, the, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I just went on a whale watch in the same area a couple weeks ago. And there were tons of whales. It's a good summer for whales. Um, and we're going to be sailing through Stellwagen Bank, which is a beautiful nature preserve where there's whales feeding all the time. When I was there um, a few weeks ago, I saw humpback whales bubble feeding, which is this really cool thing they do where they go in groups or pairs and they blow bubbles and they make a net that pushes all um, the little plankton together. And then they open their mouths and feast together. It's really cool. So, yeah, hopefully wow. I'll see a whale. Not so cool if you're the plankton. Well, Todd, I've never known you to be so empathetic to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just, you know, I'm just sort of thinking globally more, you know, as as I get older, I think we've discussed this, I've become kinder and gentler, and I'm starting to feel for the poor plankton out there, you know, just, they exist. So are you a vegetarian now? No, no, I would love some fish. I would would kill a man for some some grilled plankton. Mm. Okay, so here's my question. Do spiders... Are there still sperm whales out there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you never hear about ser- someone spotting a sperm whale. It's like always a humpback. Well, or you know a why? Whale or... Because we murdered yeah. the shit out of them. For right. A- That's <laughs> what I mean. They're, they're fairly they're rare, but they still exist. They, they still exist. Um, I think they're still pretty endangered. Um, but actually, um, sperm whale, so there, I don't know if there's sperm whale in the Atlantic. I should know. But um, this I'm makes it even right more now. amazing. So when whale ships would go out from, like, Nantucket and Cape Cod, what they would do is sail all the way around South America and then out towards Hawaii. So that's where there were the most sperm whales, was out in the middle of the Pacific. Um, The sperm whale can be found anywhere in the open ocean. Wow. So apparently they're they're everywhere. Um, Did you know that sperm whales have the largest brain of any of the whales? I... Yeah. Uh, maybe I can't. <laughs> I probably read that in Moby Dick. There's a lot of factoids about sperm whales in Moby Dick. Yeah, I feel like they saved the Starship Enterprise. Was that sperm whales or was that humpback whales? Humpbacks. I think it was humpbacks. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like they are without their purpose on Earth, but it, it would have been helpful if they had saved a, a ship in space from you know ultimate destruction. That would have made them a little bit more interesting. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's judge a book by its cover, shall we? And we should probably remind listeners that judging a book by its cover actually has nothing to do with judging a book by its cover. It's a game we haven't played actually in quite some time. We've really been lax in our game playing, guys. I feel like uh, we've become self-important and uh, everything that we fought so hard against when we started this show. <laughs> you think we're becoming pretentious and no? I think we just snotty. No, I mean Julia a little bit. But not the rest of us. So the way the the game is played is that each of us is going to read a passage from the beginning of a book. And then the other two are to guess the what the book is about. If they actually know the book, that's always helpful. Um, The era, perhaps, that takes place, um, what they think happens in the book, all that sort of good stuff. So it's really judging a book by its writing 
versus by its cover <laughs> by its opening let's be honest none of our titles for our games make no. sense no not really no. it's part of their charm i think that's true i think that's true actually bookshelf roulette kind of makes sense yeah right and bookshelf revisit makes sense but those aren't games does anyone die or win money at the end of bookshelf roulette because well it's not bookshelf russian roulette enough <laughs> <laughs> i mean although we could we could start doing that too Okay. All right, Perfect. I'm going to go first. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read two paragraphs because I think that'll be better than just one. It was death that began it all and another death that led us on. The first was of the man called Brendan, and I saw the moment of it. I saw them gather round and crouch over him in the bitter cold, then start back to give the soul passage. It was as if they played his death for me, and this was a strange thing. As they did not know, I watched, and I did not then know what they were. Strange, too, that I should have been led to them, whether by angels or demons, at a time when my folly had brought me to such great need. I will not hide my sins, or what is the worth of absolution? That very day hunger had brought me to adultery, and through adultery I had lost my cloak. See, now, initially, Thoughts? I thought it was dystopian. But now, I do not think it is dystopian by the conclusion of it. I think... I thought for a second that it was Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, but that doesn't make sense. No. Hmm. And it's... Brendan is is the name of the person that that person is brought to. It's a first-person narrator, right? Yes. First person narrator, but Brendan is the name of the person dying. Hmm. Is it, uh, it's sort of, it's too lush to be something like Cormac McCarthy. Um, because Cormac Okay, but it's definitely a novel. Yes, it's a novel. It's a novel. It's a novel. But it's about adultery. It's the point that had brought the narrator to adultery. Hmm. I think it is. And just so you know, I don't. I, I don't believe either of you should ever think about adultery as, as newly married people, just so you know. Okay. You know, my opinion on that. Um, hmm. I feel like it's uh, from contemporary literature. I feel like it might be a European writer, perhaps Sri Lankan. I'm feeling mm. Sri Lankan. I think it's American. But I think it was written in the 70s or 80s. It's just a feeling I'm getting. Yeah, can you read, read the first couple sentences again? Yeah. It was a death that began it all, and another death that led us on. The okay. first was of the man called Brendan, and I saw the moment of it. I saw them gather round and crouch over him in the bitter cold, then start back to give the soul passage. Okay, so the narrator is a man, not a woman. Right. Um, Wait, is it? That's it's m- not the road. No, it's not the road. Is it? No. I don't think so. Ryder's face I mean, I could, is betraying nothing. I, I could Google Am it. Am I supposed to give hints? <laughs> no. To no. Give no. It's, it's a male Let me ask narrator. Let question. What yeah. time period do you think the story hmm. takes place in? I believe it takes place in the 1950s. I'm going to go Oregon Trail. <laughs> There was no one on the Oregon Trail named Brendan unless they were in a fucking fraternity on the Oregon Trail. What are you talking about? Brendan's a name that's been around for a while. Is it? I I associate it with dudes in blue suits. Okay. Um, Well, hmm. that's strange things to say. Okay, I'm going uh, a novel about the Oregon Trail written in 1976. And it's a pretty good book. That's my guess. Awesome. I, I like how specific you're being. Uh, I'm going with a novel that takes place in Europe, uh, published before 1985, written by a European male. Okay. All wrong on all counts. Oh, okay. Except that it takes place in Europe. <laughs> so, oh, good job. Yeah, it was published in 1995. Ooh. It is a novel called Morality Play. By Barry Unsworth. Never heard of him. And, oh. Really? No, is it good? It sounds pretty good. It's. Uh, I loved this book. I haven't read it. Um, let's see. I read it about 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, it's really fun. It's about a traveling group of actors in what century? I want to. Oh, 14th century. Oh. In 14th century England, 
or somewhere in the UK-ish. Uh, Barry Onsworth lives in Italy, by the way. I think he's actually uh, English. He's either boom. English or, or American, but he lives in Italy. Um, and he writes the uh, he writes a lot of historical fiction like this book. Um, but yeah, it's about a troupe of actors who, um, in the 14th century, they do morality plays. So they go from town to town performing... Uh, you guys know what morality plays were, right? They were, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like very, very clean cut, good and evil um, plays. Comedia dell'arte. Yes, that that were yes. performed for small towns, and you know, that's sort of the the birth of theater as we know it. But at, at this book decides to focus on a moment when this troupe decides to rather than doing a normal morality play, they go into a town. And um, they find out about a local murder or a, a kid who was who was killed, and there was the potential that it was a murder. And so they decide to write an original play about the murder that happened in the town. So it becomes huh. this great little story revolving around you know concepts of what theater is supposed to do. Like, is it supposed to reflect the morality? Is it supposed to reflect what's actually happening in the in a culture and Sort of those questions and this troupe of actors and, and the, the narrator is not really one of the members of the acting troupe. He, as the beginning indicates, has, has stumbled upon them and ends up joining them And then as they find themselves into this new town. It's really, it's really fun. It's, it's sort of more action-y, adventure-y than is implied by its setting and, um, and, and, and its tone. There's, it's a really fast-moving, fun little little book, but uh, explore some cool issues about acting and the value of art. So you guys were way off. Um, although, you know, I, I was surprised you guys didn't... I thought maybe you would think it was uh, Pillars of the Earth because it had all this, <laughs> you know, angels and demons and folly and absolution and I lost my cloak. Cloak that's was I really... Was I wanted to read the second paragraph because of the word cloak. I figured you guys would know that it yeah, was Yeah, that's know, what will... Medievally, that's what pushed me towards uh, priests and that idea. So that's why I was thinking Gilead, and then I was just too obsessed with that. That kind of cloak. See, and that's what's pushed me towards it being European because no one gives a shit about that stuff in America. Cloaks. We don't um, give a fuck new- about cloaks. <laughs> <laughs> that's the new slogan of literary disco. Literary disco. Colon. We don't give a fuck about cloaks. <laughs> All right, I will go next. Are you guys ready? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I've, it's a long opening paragraph, so I'm just going to read, uh, I'll read like half of it. Here we go. The news about Walter Berglund wasn't picked up locally. He and Patty had moved away to Washington two years earlier and meant nothing to St. Paul now. But the urban gentry of Ramsey Hill were not so loyal to their city as to not read the New York Times. According to a long and very unflattering story in the Times, Walter had made quite a mess of his professional life out there in the nation's capital. Hmm. It sounds like um, Tom Parada to me. Hmm. Or like a sort of contemporary uh, uh, urban writing, urban writer, but like, um, well, obviously it takes place in Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Um but yeah, for some reason, for some reason, I was thought, thinking of Election, um, mm. which I never read, but the movie Election, in right. in terms of tone, like this sort of like whimsical, um, making fun of, um, of you know, groups of people. politicians. Yeah, like a yeah. slightly, like a slightly snarky satire or parody or I don't know, but maybe it's not a comedy at all. But there's something there's something comedic in that opening to me. Oh, I think it's a comedy, for sure. Can you read just the first sentence again? Yes. The news about Walter Berglund wasn't picked up locally. He and Patty had moved away to Washington two years earlier and meant nothing to St. Paul now, but the urban gentry of Ramsey Hill were not so loyal to their city as not to read the New York Times. I also feel like this... I feel like this has nothing to do with Walter Berglund. Like, I feel like the book ends up being about his neighbor or so, but this is just a a sort of mini narrative to introduce another story. Like this is just kind of a funny anecdote, 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 a funny little anecdote that like starts off, starts us off and introduces us to some of our themes. And then we get to like a family that lives in this town or used to be neighbors with these people. That's my feeling. Interesting. I can see that, but I do not think so. I think Walter Berblin has done something really stupid, some kind of Washington sex crime scandal thing. So let's see. Who would write that? 
Wait, this isn't freedom, is it? Is, is it, it freedom? freedom? <laughs> it is freedom by John Cranston. <laughs> it. Yes, it, it all sounded slightly familiar, and then I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, I read that. <laughs> Okay, because then I started thinking through it. I was like, wait a minute. This sounds like the beginning of the... F- uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> I thought I'd take a book... Did you guys... What'd you say, Julia? To jump into a, like, four-year-old conversation, I did not like Freedom that much. I thought really? it was fine. Oh, uh, I think we've talked yeah. about this. I loved I, it. I remember really liking it, but I... Like, I've never gone back to it. Um, I wrote a, I remember I reviewed it for a newspaper, and I enjoyed it. I didn't like it as much as the corrections. Um yeah, and I hate the cover. The cover makes me crazy with that fucking bird. Uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, this is the the uh, novel Freedom by Jonathan Franzen, a book that all three of us had read. I thought it'd be interesting to see <laughs> if there was something we would retain from. I mean, when did this book come out? Two thousand ten. When when was this? Uh, Two thousand ten. Yeah. So. This book is four years old, and we just barely... That tricky as shit. <laughs> barely... And that is one of the main characters. Walter's like yeah. one of the main guys, right? Oh. But oddly That's enough, so Ryder, you're sort of accurate that the story is going to veer off from him and be about other people. Right. And of course it is about other people. It's about Patty and about the son right. and all of the history and all that crap. So it, it turns out to be accurate. And it is a comedy. And Tom Parada is not a bad sort of comparison for... You know that kind of writing of comic serious literary writing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. and then you yeah. just got it exactly. Incredible, <laughs> incredible work writer. Freedom. <laughs> and I remember liking the last pages of this a lot, but I have no idea how it ends. I don't remember it at all. Well, so that's interesting. <laughs> it actually begins with its ending then, because he he goes and makes a mess of things in Washington in the course of the book, right? So yes. It, mm-hmm. So um, it's actually. Yeah. So, because it ends, yeah. I I don't want to give too much away, but it, it sort of ends with with where Walter ended up through the course of a long winding. But then it goes back to when they're raising their kid, right? So, so in in I guess St. Paul. Interesting. But, but no, I guess by the time the book is over, um, it's not two years. It's not the ending is not contiguous to the end, to the beginning. I don't think. Um, okay. I yeah, cause doesn't he because doesn't he end up in that, that cabin happened. house that they own? Yeah, he's in, the, in that cabin. Give up. Uh, Come on, don't give everything away. It's a good oh, book. sorry, he was in a house. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> he ends up living somewhere after 562 pages. <laughs> it does cover a lar- large span. I think that book covers like the entire Bush years, right? Like That's part of it. It's, like goes from 2000 to 2008 or something. Yeah, yeah and so. then there's all the stuff of them in college. And... Oh, there's the Iraq War. Like There's a lot packed into that. Read it. Yeah. Read it. Get opinions. Yeah, it. it's a Yeah, absolutely read it and remind us again whether or not we liked it cuz we don't really <laughs> I'd have to go look at my reviews I to remember. It. Exactly I loved what it. I loved it, but I I you I agree with you Nat. like at the time I don't think I would have thought it was as I, I I would have thought it was better than the corrections, but in retrospect the corrections is so good and it's very similar, you know. Yeah, the corrections have stayed with me more emotionally than freedom. I mean, freedom Me too. I think at the time felt more like a a polemic than the corrections did. I mean, the corrections is just a, it's a novel about a family. Whereas yeah. this is about, you know, the excess of American life and that fucking right. bird. And how cats kill mm-hmm. a lot of birds. Yeah. Cats, cats do kill a lot of birds. That, yep. Poor plankton and birds. Yeah. I think that's oh the, the takeaway from this episode. Mr. Of the show. Empathy. Okay. You guys ready for mine? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, mine has a first paragraph. That's one sentence. So I will actually read the first two. My God, May thought, it's heaven. The campus was vast and rambling, wild with Pacific color, and yet the smallest detail had been carefully considered, shaped by the most eloquent hands. On land that had once been a shipyard, then a drive-in movie theater, then a flea market, then blight, there were now soft green hills and a Calatrava fountain and a picnic area with tables arranged in concentric circles, and tennis courts, clay and grass, and a volleyball court where tiny children from the company's daycare center were running, squealing, weaving like water. Amid all of this was a workplace, too, 400 acres of brushed steel and glass on the headquarters of the most influential company in the world. The sky above was spotless and blue. The Circle by Dave Eggers. Yes! (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. Two I was just about two. to say. <laughs> two for two. I hope Ryder gets it. Wow. That was amazing. Did you just read it or something? I've never read it. <laughs> totally you never guessed. read it? Nope. I just know, know what it's about. I don't know. It was just what you were reading. Like it was, it was the campus of the most influential. I was, and I was like, well, it's California, right. it's Pacific, and then I was like, oh, this is about the company. And I knew, I know that the book's about a, you know, a campus of like a Google yeah. or Microsoft-like company, or a Facebook-like company in Silicon Valley. So I just sort of. Oh my God, Todd! Yeah. What is going on wow. today? All right. Wow. Boom! I'm on fire. So Writer is a fucking savant. So literate. Yeah. My God. He's read all the hit Jesus. novels. Freedom. No, I haven't. I haven't read them. <laughs> no, no, he hasn't. That's the right. thing. <laughs> I don't need to read them. I just know them. You just, they just are divine <laughs> they into just... him. They just download into his consciousness. Did you actually? Did you read that book, Julia? I am actually. I picked it because I'm in the middle of it and I like can't stop reading it. And I was like, oh, I'll just talk about this. It's really good. It's really good. Oh, I want to read um, it. Yeah. You know, uh, my friend John, he who recommended uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk to us, uh, did not like uh, it very much. But I don't know. You know, Eggers is a kind of divisive dude. Like, I feel like there are people that never come around to liking him, and then there are those that really love him. So I'm not sure if John just doesn't like Eggers in general. Um, but the book fascinated me when I heard about it. So I, I do want to read it. Okay. Uh, I I love Dave Eggers. And I remember, you know, like everyone, I read a heartbreaking, staggering work, uh, a staggering work of heartbreaking genius. I didn't like it at first. And, uh, you know, then I came to really love it. But then I came to really love him when he got into his social issue um, phase that he's still in with What is the What and Zytoon, which are two really great books. And then I haven't read something by him for a long time. And all my friends recommended this to me. And it is it's heavy handed and I can see why people wouldn't like it. But at the same time, it is so, you know, addicting to have basically what it is, is it's science fiction that is so close to our present reality. It doesn't feel like 30 years in the future. It feels like two years in the future. So there's something very strange and addicting about oh, cool. um, reading about that because it's presenting all this information that is so real that it feels like the story is inevitable, rather like an optional work of science fiction. So it's about a company that buys Facebook, Twitter, Google, and PayPal and everything, and you just have one identity, and it has to be your real name. So this is all revealed oh, on like so page so two. So it's Amazon, basically. Yeah, uh, it's gonna, it's going to be Amazon yeah, no, by the it, end. And, but it combines all of them, and it names them all. Um, and mm. it has to be your real identity so that it eliminates all internet trolling and, um, it eliminates like all these negative things. But of course it's like, you know, very disturbing how much you are owned and watched over. So it's really, really weird because the technology that's described is the technology we have now with just a little bit more. It's like, yeah, it feels like what could Amazon or Google or Facebook do right. in the next couple of years? It's very well, strange. Well, and Facebook already – Facebook announced that study that they had done where they were fucking with people's emotions by only posting the depressing – I mean, that's some that's some brave new world shit right yeah, there. I mean, so that's really up. crazy. But about Dave Eggers, uh, you actually sort of touched on it, Julia, but here's the weird thing is I own all of his books and I have not read one of them in five years mm -hmm. or so, I would guess, maybe more. But every time a new book of his comes out, I buy it because I really think he's doing amazing things for writing and for reading in the community with all his 826 stuff yeah. and his philanthropy. And so it's almost like I don't give a shit if I like his books or yeah. not i just i'm happy to give him 17.99 or whatever it is for his books because that money is actually going somewhere good and he's the only writer that i feel like i do that for um and you know i don't know him personally um i you know heartbreaking work of staggering genius i read and i thought oh okay you know it's okay but i you know a new book comes i buy it um and it's it's sort of like the only author-based literary activism that I have other than not buying books by people I actively dislike personally. Right. Um. No, I agree with you. He's he's a great man of letters. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. he's a great contemporary man of letters in a way that, like, Franzen is not. Yeah. Right. Like, Franzen, it, yeah, every time Franzen opens his mouth, I just sort of am like, ugh, I know where you're coming from, but because 
um, you know, he does he did the thing where he didn't want Oprah's sticker on his right his on the corrections and like he just always seems to to have this combative relationship with readers and whether people are reading. Whereas Dave Eggers just kind of throws the doors open and is like once you know very engaged in his communities and yeah i mean i volunteered for 826 la back in the day like his his organizations are great and and i just love the way he approaches um literature and and reading and you know and and literacy as 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 an activist great yeah it's pretty amazing i mean i mean you know the the thing is also he has the means to do it you know his books sell a lot he gets paid a a good sum of money to do it and that's uh, you know that he gives it back. Not every writer has that ability, um, but he, you know, he was doing that from the get-go. You know, which yeah. I mean, makes it, it says something about him. Sweeney's and the believer. Right. I mean, the that's believer. a gift to the writing community as well. Yeah, because yeah. It, it's not as though a magazine like the Believer or something like McSweeney's makes money. You know, they're literary magazines, so if they're making a profit, it's a narrow profit. Um, but you know, I, I think there's, I think there's real value in, in what. And what he does, and it's it's sort of bracing because, you know, at least in in the world that I, you know, live in socially and professionally, and you know, I, I could do more. I suppose I think we all could do more. You just don't see it, you know, where writers are, are insular, angry creatures most of the time, <laughs> and you know, we we keep to our 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 own lives. Um, but here's a guy who's out there doing it. I I really respect that. Yeah, and I think yeah, me too. And for me, the the biggest and best of those projects and maybe one of the earlier ones although i'm not an expert is what is the what which was a book he co-wrote with well really what he did was um one of the lost boys of sudan told him his life story and then dave eggers wrote it and you know and they were open about the process and they went on the book tour together and everything and so it's this work of like weird hybrid of fictionalized non-fiction it's very strange narratively but since it was so like good-hearted and well done and transparent like you never heard him get a hard time about you know exaggerating the story or whatever which presumably he did not but it's a great book and just really have you guys read yeah, that that's one? that's the last one i read actually that it's was so it's so unbelievable it's very sad because i think i, own it, I think i'd read a segment of it in the new yorker didn't it didn't they run a, a bit of it in there and that got me to read it know. something like that Something like that. But that was the last one. That was a good one. I, I distinctly it. remember playing running charades and Julia <laughs> doing what is the what, which is the hardest title to have to charade. <laughs> How do you charade what is the what? You go book, three words. Four words. Or four words. And then you get the and then it's like how do you get what and i just remember sitting there doing it because i think that might have been the first time i'd ever heard of the book this was what 2008 when we were in school right um and i just remember frustratingly trying to do that oh thanks julia (laughs) come on i my skill at running charades is something you have always liked about me (laughs) braver words have never been spoken then that was the hardest thing to charade I hope one day to have, to have written a novel that's hard to charade. <laughs> Submergence would be hard to charade. How about that? Submergence segue? would be a difficult huh? book to charade. We should talk right. about that book after our break. All right. After our break. All right. Stick around. We'll be back with Submergence by J.M. Ledgard. Welcome back to Literary Disco. We now turn to a novel that um, we came to kind of oddly enough through an article about YA fiction. Uh, the novel is Submergence by a Scottish author, J.M. Ledgard. Um, Ledgard. Mr. Ledgard, Ledgard, was born in the Shetland Islands. Ledgard? Ledgard? Ledgard. So he's, um, he's a writer... He has a novel, a previous novel called Giraffes, um, but mostly he's a journalist for The Economist, um, which is an amazing magazine. If anyone has uh, never heard of it before, you should. Um, And he works a lot in Africa. Um, I don't really know that much more about him. The reason we found this book was because I, somebody tweeted at me, or maybe I just saw it on Twitter. Uh, Slate has an article by Ruth Graham. Yes. Yes called adults should be embarrassed to read children's books um <laughs> and i read this uh, you Throwing know based, and i 
tweeted this out to you two. Um, and in the midst of this article, you know, talking about how adults should not, you know, so comfortably admit to reading YA fiction, she mentioned that a great, more adult, complicated book that she had read in the last year was Submergence. Um, and so I thought that, you know, I just had never heard of this book. And um, I actually, when I looked it up, I couldn't even buy it on Amazon right away. It was on a waiting list because it's not widely published. And I haven't heard about it outside of this article. But then um, according to, you know, its back cover, it's really well reviewed. And um, I thought the book was really intense and, and very interesting. And I'm glad glad I read it. I'm not 100% sold on it. What, what did you guys think? Um, I, I thought it was equally really intense. It, it reminded me of, um, of a couple of things. It reminded me at different times of reading a Michael Ondaatje novel, reading a John le Carre novel, and reading an academic paper. Um, yeah. Because it's, it is extraordinarily rich with facts. Um, so the, the main character, well, there's two main characters. There's a, a woman named Danny who is a professor of oceanography, but that's not her actual professorial title. Um, but that that'll be easy enough for you guys to understand, and um, and then James, who is a uh, spy for Britain, whose cover is that he works as a water consultant in Africa, um, and the novel follows both of them: James after he's been abducted in Somalia, mm -hmm. and Danny as she prepares to plunge to the bottom of the ocean floor in a submersible, and then also in its center point deals with um, a brief meeting between the two of them, a, a three day or four days time they spend at a, at a hotel on the coast um, where they have a, a very intense romantic interlude. Um, but it's, it's, it's a largely plotless novel. Um, and it's, it is all about facts and about truth and about then also metaphor and what it means to be a human being and all these very large weighty issues. It, it's not a, it's not necessarily an enjoyable book to read and I think that's that's a challenge because it's it's really good but as we the three of us talked about briefly via email with one another it's not a book that you can read five pages sit down and pick it up the next day and remember remember where you were it's hard to pick up the narrative threats what what were your initial thoughts Julia um I was worried um, and I'm not sure that the worry has completely gone away with the title and then the two themes. Um, and the title is just like a big finger pointing at the themes, of course, um, right. that it would be too heavy handed, um, which it was, but it was also so weird in its detail and its style that I, I, I don't know, I guess I started to forgive it, but this is a book that is like written. This is not a book about the story. It's about the writing no. and the themes. This is, I feel and a, like. And about is, literature also. It's a really bo a book about the importance of literature and the memory of literature also. Absol yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a strong preference for um, Danny's parts. I would feel a sense of relief when those would, would come up because I just thought, I, just, I don't know, I just found them really interesting. Um, like, I liked the facts, and I liked the details, and I liked, you know, all the undersea stuff. I guess I'm a dork for the water. But, um, yeah, so <laughs> I had that experience of, like, you know, any book that's divided into two distinct parts like that, that title experience of like, oh, I really want to get to this next section. Um, so there was times that I really liked it and times where I was, I mean, it was, it was a tough read. It was one of the more difficult books we've read in a long time. And it's not like it's a, it's a long book. It's, it's barely over 200 pages. Um, but the, the writing style, it shifts point of view, and then sometimes it's not in any point of view whatsoever. So you'll be in Danny's point of view, and Danny, again, is the, the professor and the, the scientist. And then in James's point of view as he's in captivity. And then you're in just sort of a <clears throat> authorial point of view that's talking about things about science and about uh, Islam and, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, a whole host of other topics. And so, you know, I, I think the challenge for a book like this is that when you're trying to get an empathetic response out of the reader, but you're never staying in with a character long enough for the reader to get involved with them, I think you have to do more work. I, I ended up really liking the Danny sections more as well because I, there was a predictability to the James in captivity, which is different than James at 15, which was a great TV show in the 1970s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and not that, predictable at all. 
and not predictive at all no um but that i sort of knew how that story was going to go and then it did basically but the, i found it really um unnerving the whole book was unnerving to read because it is about the claustrophobia of being both underwater and being held captive by by people who are preparing to kill you at any given time. Mm-hmm. We should read some, um, just so people have a sense of what it's like. I think this is from when they're together. Yes. So, well, I think I flagged this because I was like. There's no way that people on their first date would ever talk like this. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a long scene, but then it says, it was already, yeah, they're, they're like immediately like, what are your favorite myths? Uh, yeah, no, here we go. <laughs> yeah, 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 here, I'll read that. That wasn't what I was going to read, but this is pretty funny. They talked into the night and were awake to each other. The uprightness of the chairs worked against intimacy. There had already been a consummation, and their courtship was subsequent in talk, not in the silence of touching. That is so the style of this book, that one paragraph. Mm -hmm. Then, he felt a brittleness inside him. He was not able to share his career with her, and it was the imbalance in their conversation that perhaps made him speak about the Midgard serpent, which lived so enormously in the ocean the Norsemen (laughs) believed it encircled the world. Do you know this story? <laughs> Vaguely, she said. Hardly. The bond I felt that had... so dumb, by the way. Like, do, is this how other people talk? Because yeah. the... on my first date with, with Wendy, who became my wife, it was at a TGI Friday's. <laughs> and we we bonded over drinking, you know, fucking mudslides. Okay, yeah. well, hold on. Because there, there is something very cool about this book yes. that I really like, which is that it's worldly, right? I mean, like, yeah. in a way, yeah, this could absolutely. never have been written by an American and I think that that is a great strength because I, you know, I, I just, I, I haven't read a book like this before, or I have, but not in a long time. The, the closest book I've read was a book called Hopeful Monsters. Did you guys ever read that book? No. Um, I feel like I've mentioned it before. I'm blanking on the author's name, so I have to, and I can't find it on my bookshelf because my bookshelf I recently alphabetized, and since I don't know the author's name, I'm not... Oh, Mosley. That's the author's <laughs> name. Uh, it's, it's a similar in that it's about intellectual Europeans um, and slash spies, but that book uh, takes people through, you know, World War II or pre-World War II, through the war, and whatever. It's, it's very similar in that it's super worldly. It takes place in multiple countries, and it's kind of a love story between two people who are both scientists, mathematicians, geniuses... And there's part of me that loves that because we don't get enough of that in America. We don't appreciate, you know, intellectualism and intellectual characters. We tend to dumb our stories down or dumb our writing down. Um, But we also tend to be more entertaining and less pretentious, which is, I found this book not very entertaining. And I did find it incredibly pretentious. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just can't, I don't know if I can settle in my mind those two things. Like on one hand, I'm impressed by its intellectualism and on the other hand i'm just like i kept rolling my eyes when it's like you know it, like you could almost um, you, you just wanted the book to be narrated by anthony hopkins you know it's like we were dining on fava beans and the antlers of animals that had been killed by the norseman hunters you know it's just like so like when they're when they meet they meet at this you know this french hotel and like there's no sense i don't I've never been in a hotel like this in my life. And I can't, I, like, when, when they're describing, it's like, he, he doesn't just describe that it's like a room with nice Persian rugs. It's like, the rugs were from the Ottoman Empire of this century, and they had been imported by this person and reminded her of the, you know, Greek myth of Agamemnon. You're just like, what? Like, I, I, so all of that reaching felt aspirational to me like we wish the world were populated by these people this smart and i but i just don't know if i actually believe that people are thinking this way or or that characters sort of move in worlds this easily or this coolly like by the time you know they have their first date and then she wakes him up at five in the morning the next morning to go for like a brisk swim in the sea (laughs) like it just all it, it felt like a if it felt like a uh, it felt like porn for intellectuals, you know, like romance or like a rom- romance novel for really, really smart, worldly people. Um, and but at the same hand, on the other hand, I actually appreciate that because that's kind of cool. Like, yeah, it's a spy novel. It's a romance novel. But it also has these 
you know, very profound moments. I'm just not sure if I could distinguish real profound moments from profound ishness. Yeah, like, I think it's there's always, a lot of like stuff that I read. That, that's yeah. the thing is that yeah. there's every moment is reaching for the next level. But I mean, and that that sort of goes to the obviousness of the of the metaphor of it being called submergence and it being about you know a woman who goes underwater for a living and then this man who's held in captivity. That there's layers underneath everything. That everything is a, has a false bottom. That if you're a human, there's a false bottom to everything. Um, right. And so that that appealed to me, but it also I was after about the first twenty five pages. I was like, I I got it. Yeah, can can we figure out if he's going to get out of this horrible situation with the Somalis? Um, is right. she going to do something interesting? I I kept I kept looking for I guess um, profoundness in the plot as much as the narrative thinking, and it's right. not that kind of book, you know. And, and I think the the closest book that I can think of as a comparison is Anil's Ghost by Michael Ondaatje. I don't know if either of you read that book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it uh, apparently Sri Lankans are on my mind. It takes place in Sri Lanka, and it has to do with the disappeared in, in Sri Lanka, and it starts with a dead body. Um, and there's there are um, doctors and anthropologists, and so they're all having these very intelligent, very in-depth conversations about the nature of the world they live in and about nationality and about medicine and about spirituality, all these things that maybe aren't a part of the daily conversations that I have, but I can appreciate watching other people have those conversations. But at some point also gets a little numbing. And I think that's the thing here is it gets a little numbing after a while. Well, for me, I want theme. I mean, and I guess this is just personal, you know, theme to be a revelation and not like a thesis statement. This feels like the word submergence is a thesis statement and then it's pulled apart throughout the novel. So you're not experiencing that feeling of, oh, I'm realizing this, I'm experiencing it, I'm connecting to it. Personally, you're thinking, okay, how does this relate to submergence? You know, so it feels Mm -hmm. more, I think that's what makes it feel pretentious is, setting such an elevated theme and then literally telling the reader, you know, in this really authoritarian voice, like, uh, um, this is a classic one. One characteristic of sea creatures is their constant movement, not grief, not anything can stop them. A tuna tagged off Martinique recently was caught 50 days later in Brezunde in Norway, near the fishing town of Alusund. And that's a whole paragraph. So, you know, it does. It feels didactic to say not even grief can stop a tuna fish. Like, do tunas experience grief? No. Tunas do not experience grief. Right? Well, I don't know. Do they? Do you know, Julia? Maybe once you come back from your little whaling adventure, you'll have a better appreciation for our tasty mm. friends of the deep There was sea. a moment that, that, that for some reason really bugged me, and it just summed up what was bugging me about the book. It's on page 114, and it's just a moment where the guy, our character, looks at himself in the mirror. But the way it's described is, mm-hmm. there was a mirror in the room, and he stood looking at himself. Or rather, because he was not vain in that way, he regarded his other self caught inside the mirror and i just couldn't help but be like what am i supposed to what does that mean like what why he looked in the mirror but there was all this sort of like i don't know that for some reason that just was like his other self caught in the mirror it's like i just kept feeling like these characters were stopping reflecting and then the novel the novel would sort of like zoom away and then like we're supposed to in the zooming away feel this like rush of insight but i kept i never got anywhere i never had insight i just kept feeling the sense that i should have insight and maybe i'm just not getting it maybe i didn't like you know because i didn't even really like the submergence thesis statement never drove home like a, a, a coherent message in my mind or feeling I don't know. It just felt murky. The whole thing felt kind of murky smartness to me. And I'm not like, I wanted some more crystal clear moments, whether they're plot moments. I mean, I would have preferred them to be plot, not more, you know, thesis statements about French novelists from the 18th century. I mean, those factoids that they pop up are really crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, 
you know, just every, you know, there'll be like suddenly a section about Che Guevara and rugby players. And it'll be like, I did too. No, there's cool facts. That, but then I when you realize, uh, you're, you're forced because who's organizing them? You know, you have, what's the organizing principle behind these factoids? And I'm just not mm-hmm. quite sure. And maybe not being sure is, is the point. Like maybe we're supposed to reread this book and, and find something in it later. I don't know. But I, I Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think because a lot of it is narrated from the point of view of someone who is disoriented and without time, and that's James, who is in captivity, mm-hmm. um, and is being beaten and is, you know, slowly dying of infections and all that sort of thing as well, that not unlike The Stranger, where he talks about having enough memories to last him, you know, several lifetimes, just of one day, that's basically what James is doing is he's recounting all of his memories and all of his little anecdotes just to keep himself sane as he's being held in this, you know, untenable situation. So, you know, when when I sort of took away the the artifice of these sort of unrelated plot moments and had it just be in his mind and, and these are the things that he's ordering uh, in his mind to keep himself somewhat connected to the real world, then I found it more compelling. I, I think the the problem, well, not the problem, but the the sort of tactical reading issue is that thing that we mentioned at the beginning is that it's not a book you can put down and then pick back up again mm-hmm. and be in it. Um, you, you always got to go back and read five or ten pages right. just to remember whose point of view you're in and how you got there and where you were and, you know, what his thought process is at that point to get to this other thinking about, you know, the jinn of Islam and all these things. So, you know, I, I almost felt like I should have read this instead of reading over five or six days, which I did, that if I had read it in four hours, the actual you know reading time that maybe a 200-page book usually takes me or five hours, that it would have been a more compelling read to me instead of a, a okay, it's going to take me 20 minutes to pick this all back up again. It's going to take me 20 minutes to reorder it. And that's not the fault of the, the writer necessarily, but it's the kind of book that they've written, the strange mm-hmm the strange poetry really mm-hmm. of the work where you once you close the book you lose the narrative thread and i don't think that's true for a lot of books that we read for enjoyment perhaps yeah, yeah. it's interesting because i i guess for me so much of the the project of a novel is to tell a, a narrative thread you know is to pull me along through a with a narrative thread like i think i would rather read nonfiction by this author um, or I'd rather I'd rather read him do like a biography of a historical figure, um, because to me, part of the project of, of creating fiction is to um, not have to state thematics or collect facts that sort of build a symphony of feelings and like, but to actually create a plot, to actually create mm-hmm. a, a story that 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 pulls me through maybe some facts or, but you know. Maybe that's that's just the type of novel I prefer. I mean, obviously, there's no right or wrong. Um, but I I guess I wish there was there was a little more plot. I mean, fundamentally, I guess it just comes down to that. That um, which is interesting because I discovered this book in a essay that was against YA fiction, primarily because <laughs> YA fiction is too simplistic and plot driven. Right. Um, and I mostly agreed with a lot of that article. So the fact that this is a counter example that I don't like that much, um, maybe I'm just never satisfied. I don't know. No, but, you're just well, moderate in all things. <laughs> right. But, you know, I think the it's also, it's a, it's a political book. It's about the war on terror. It's about the, you know, the, the battle for the African continent. It's, you know, there, there's a lot of weighty topics here. So the, the article that mentioned it, that against YA fiction article, was suggesting, you know, that he, here's a book where there's a death in the end, and we won't give away who dies, as they were comparing it to a fault in our, The Fault in Our Stars, that had left the the writer of that particular essay shattered by it and kept coming back to it. And it is a pretty stirring death that happens at the end of it after you've gone through, you know, this, this entire experience. But, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know if one death in a novel needs to be more or less emotionally upsetting or memorable than any other. Yeah. It's, it's how you take it, you know, like mm-hmm. the, I was thinking after I read this book and um, about what deaths in books had left me the most moved recently. 
And I kept going back to Ron Curry Jr.'s Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles and the death of the father in that book. And it left me most moved because it had reminded me of the moment of my own mother's death. And so if you're connected emotionally to the death of a character in a book for whatever reason, you're going to it's going to affect you in more ways. In this, when the character dies, I was just like, well, thank God that character's dead. The suffering is over, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it it wasn't it wasn't something that i felt personally it was something i felt for this character that that did not necessarily seem entirely real to me mm-hmm. mm. well yeah. see that's that stays abstract then right like we right. never we never get to grounded human people that we connect with and i i, I do I, it felt cold this book felt cold it felt cold and murky to me it felt like the deep the depths like of, the the of the sea like the sea yes. <laughs> It is true. You know, it's amazing that our our barometer for, like, how interesting or good things are, or like, what kind of twist is always a death, you know, because mm-hmm. actually, I'll never forget this. Philip Lopate said in um, a nonfiction workshop I was in with him, um, and if you guys don't know him, he's a great essayist, um, he said, if you're going to write nonfiction, you know, writing about someone's death is not a story, because it is... <laughs> literally the only thing that every living creature on earth has in common so there's nothing special (laughs) about death you know and he's saying this to a room full of people you know half of which had come in with essays about you know their parents or their kids or their co-workers dying you know so if you're going to write about death it has to be something about you know the life of that person or the meaning of that person not just not just death or it has to be that there's a parallel story to it that matters. I mean, mean, this is something I think about a lot because I end up writing about, well, if you write crime fiction, you write a lot about death. (laughs) So I write about death a lot. But even in nonfiction, that if you write about someone dying, another person dying, and you're equating it to your own life, and here I think about, like, Joanne Beard's The Fourth State of Matter, you have to make that other person's death and your own life almost equal so that the living person their suffering is greater than the death of the person. Um, it's it's a strange, it's a strange algebra that I think readers do or don't buy into, um, and you see it in a lot of nonfiction. Like even, even my friend Emily Rapp's book, uh, "The Still Point of the Turning World," which is nonfiction, and it's about her son dying from Tay Sachs. Um, you know, it's. The, the tragedy is not that her son dies, although that is, of course, a tragedy. It's the lingering trauma that, that Emily carries with her about a child she couldn't save. You know, it's, it's a complex thing. But if you don't care about the people involved, like Ryder was saying, it is just a really cold experience. I'm looking at my notes in the back of the book. Every, I swear to God, every single one of them I've marked is one of the factoid sections like one of the paragraphs that don't have to do with our characters. Um, mm-hmm. So there's really, there's like four different time periods going, or three different sections. There's sections that follow James in captivity in Somalia. There's sections that follow Danny in, yeah, so there's four. So there's sections that follow James in captivity, sections that follow Danny alone on her voyage. And then there's sections of the, the two of them together. And then there's just these sort of sections that, you know, describe some historical, scientific, or mathematical fact that's interesting. Every th- note that I took was on one of those. That's I didn't even realize I was doing that. Um, which I guess just makes me feel like those were the most interesting fact, like points, like that mm-hmm. the actual story didn't really hit home for at all for me. Like I am not emotionally invested. And that's kind of important, isn't it, <laughs> to a novel? Like, I'm, yeah, it, it, it has to be. Yeah, but I do think I do want to say that you know I did enjoy reading this book because the quality and the interest level of the scientific information was yes. incredibly interesting. So yes. it's it's mm-hmm. both that the plot was not really important and the facts were so amazing. So you know, like that's creating this major tipping experience that we're having of like more facts more facts right you know um is that the facts were so good i mean like this book is definitely if you're interested in you know undersea exploration um and and you know the war for the african continent um 
it is it's got a lot of really interesting stuff in there i would say it's worth reading it's worth reading if those things interest you well and i was thinking about you actually julia because of all the stuff about the mutations of whales and Mm -hmm. and how you have to think about whales if you want to understand the dimensionality of the ocean this there's this bit on page 64 it's this very esoteric conversation that danny and james have with one another on their first date um where she says the cuviers is that i think that's how you pronounce it the cuviers have learned to dive deeper over a million year evolution they edged further in from one mutation to the next thinking about the way a beaked whale dives is a good way to think about the dim the dimensionality of the ocean and then she goes and she basically teaches us oceanography which is a class i failed i think in college because i was drunk um where you know she talks about all the different layers um the ocean has five layers the first is the epilagic the next layer is the mesopelagic and it goes down and down and down i was like oh fuck this would have been helpful stuff for me to know at some time in my life so wait a minute (laughs) once again we get back to what the heck is wrong with you you failed mythology and oceanography you had the most fun cool college classes ever and you i don't think i failed oceanography i think i got a a c or a d in oceanography you know, the problem was that they had classes before noon. So basically anything that are... wasn't an English literature class, you got to see. Or yes. Anything. That's just. Yeah. I, I earned my 2.6 undergraduate GPA. God, and now you run a college program. I know. I know. But good I was for really you. good no, as an good English for you. Major. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Stay I in school, kids. Even if you're at a community college, American stick it out. Dream. You You one day could be running a program through the UC system. <laughs> could happen. <laughs> Look, if my problem, I think, was primarily that I drank so much Goldschlager oh, that my Gold brain Schlager. was primarily flakes. I went through real a Goldschlager gold. phase too. What's up with that? It was something about being yeah, like eighteen w- and thinking that like it's gold, man. But really, it's just schnapps. Uh, it's just like cinnamon grossness. Oh, I was having a conversation about Goldschlager just yesterday on the internet with uh, the author Elizabeth McCracken and the author Dave Housley, who also runs a great literary magazine, uh, Barrel House, and I. One of them asked, what did it taste like? I think Elizabeth asked. And Dave said, a Trans Am. A, a shirtless high five at 5 a.m. So true. Oh, God. And I mostly remember it tasting like cinnamon and bactine. Yep. When oh, I, God. The night I graduated from high school, we couldn't find any Goldschlager, so we bought Aftershock, oh. which is like oh, the even trashier cousin of Goldschlager. <laughs> But instead of gold, it had cinnamon crystals in it. I don't even know if this stuff still exists. And uh, like two years later after I graduated, someone gave me a cinnamon candle and I almost vomited just because the the memories of my high school graduation night drinking Aftershock until I puked were still haunting me. Oh, cinnamon. I I don't think you can eat cinnamon since. My advice for my nieces and nephews uh, going off to college has been very similar to each and every one, which is that spend a dollar more and get alcohol that you like. <laughs> you'll, you'll never regret it. <laughs> wow. All right. And, and never, never drink anything that has flakes of real metal in it. And it alloy-free alcohol is, is definitely... Well, Todd, I'm get. really glad that submergence could, see, you know, make up for your college <laughs> educational problems. <laughs> You got your myths and see, your oceanography. The the, see, maybe this is the problem, is that my my base level of engagement intellectually boils down to drinking alcohol flecked with gold <laughs> versus the mysteries of the African subcontinent and uh, and the battle for the for the world's oceans. I, I don't know. I mean, here's the thing about about a book like this is that I felt when I was done with it that I had learned a lot but that I hadn't been entertained and so if I'm going to just learn a lot I should just go read a textbook or just regular nonfiction. Right. yeah but the uh, question but is you, would you will you actually read it that's the question yeah well I don't know because on a, on a in know, some ways yeah. like what Malcolm Gladwell writes is very similar right he picks like a theme and then cherry picks studies that sort of reinforce or expand his theme or his con, and then like Blink or any one of his books, it's just sort of one idea, and then he'll p- call together different. I mean, that's like a certain popular intellectualism that I feel like this book actually is a, a fiction equivalent to. And so it's fascinating. There are cool studies talked about and, and facts, but yeah, I think you gotta if you're gonna be if you're gonna write a novel, you gotta have 
characters that I care about more. I didn't like either one of these people. I didn't like them. Well, that, oh, that, good... that's the thing that I wanted to bring up. I, I forgot about that. So they are both really unlikable. Yeah. Like, highly yeah. unlikable. They're cold, like, and... kind of mean. <laughs> uh, rich. They're very <laughs> they rich and wealthy. And, like, they don't, you know, like, besides being, you know, captured by Somalis, I was kind of like, your, your lives are pretty good, guys. Like, she just... You know, flits yeah, from university to other university. Well, but you know what I mean? Like, in terms of, of class, like, yeah. I feel like a broken record how much I talk about class, but it really is striking to me how little we recognize class in our literature. And, like, the fact that this book is just describing them, like, with their servants making them tea and their lobster dinners and their hotel room and, like, no recognition that there's like 400 people that work at the hotel probably that they're staying at and we're supposed to care mostly about their romance as they you know make love in a bubble bath like i just it was a little like this is convenient that these people are just we're focused on their intellectual debates on their first date instead of like where they are or what they're i don't know it just felt all very unreal to me it didn't feel I, I was thinking also, so I, I don't mind a book with unlikable characters. I mean, I think a lot of books have unlikable characters because they're interesting, they're conflicted. Mm-hmm. But, so if I think about this book compared to, like, Atonement by Ian McEwan, or even um, on a smaller scale, On Chesil Beach by Ian McEwan, where there's not really very likable people in a romantic situation buttressed by lies, um, there is still something that makes them, I, I think... I don't want to say redeemable because these both these characters are redeemed in a way at the end of the book, but that make the journey towards that um, more human, I guess. I, I don't know. I, 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 I think we're probably hitting on all the same points over and over again, but I guess the final thing for me in relation to unlikable characters here is that I'm willing to follow an unlikable character all around forever and ever if they do something that surprises mm-hmm. me, and neither of these characters surprised me. They, they did exactly what they were going to do. Um, and that's, I think that's where it sort of became more of an intellectual study than a, a real fictional pursuit. Okay. All right. Well, that was Submergence okay. by J.M. Ledgard. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking for something to make you feel smarter. Go ahead and read it. <laughs> yeah. If you, no, seriously, if you like intellectual books that you have, you know, that you want to sit down with for four or five hours and learn a lot and just kind of be immersed in the language, you will probably like this book. Yeah. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I disliked it. I'm feeling, I feel like, I'm feeling really torn about this book now because... You said you liked it before we I do. I, I liked it less after we talked about yeah. it. I'm the same way. I mean, I feel I was. I'm sort writer. of in between. Like, like I said, I, on one hand, I really love reading a smart book with smart characters. That's so rare mm-hmm. nowadays, unfortunately, because yeah, I mean, we're mostly trying to keep our attention spans as focused as possible. And like when I, you know, when we emailed each other about this book, and I said that I have been having a hard time putting it down and picking it back up, that might be a really good thing. Like, we probably mm-hmm. should not be picking up books and putting them down in like five minute bursts because we're checking our emails and flipping through our phones and text messages like i i i i started to feel like that was my problem (laughs) like that actually a book that challenges me and doesn't immediately because i feel there is this tendency ever since the da vinci code with its you know three page chapters there is a tendency in a lot of contemporary fiction to keep those really short chapters and to to reintroduce your character every time you pick, you know, a new paragraph just to sort of And this is a book with no home. chapters. Yeah, this book is like a free I mean, That's important. Flowing, thing. There's no chapter. Yeah, and you got to just sort of you got to wade through it yourself with your own brain leading the way. You got to submerge. Right. You got to submerge. Well, you know what? Baby. Let me let me recommend a book that actually is sort of similar to this that I think does a lot of the things that we're talking about wishing this book did and that is An Untamed State by Roxane Gay which uh, came out um, I think two months ago and it's about a woman who is kidnapped in Haiti and she comes from an aristocratic Haitian family um, and she was raised in America so there's all these huge class issues her husband is an American um, and it's it goes through her entire time in captivity and then after her release and, and what that's like. So it's it has a lot to do with with the politics of Haiti and the politics of the West, but it also it has a, a propellant force of drama and plot that keeps you reading and um, 
and makes it not just an intellectual pursuit, but a, a page turner as well. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that was submergence. Yeah. That's a good one. yeah. Right. Good, good talk. talk. Well, if I don't see you <laughs> on the whale, or because I've been eaten by a whale, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. It was great knowing you guys. <laughs> don't get eaten by a whale. That's the they bottom don't hunger line. for just, human just flesh. They don't. And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read the stories of Brees DJ Pancake. Literary Disco is edited and produced by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.